You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 175 for October 23rd, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about translating those archaeology skills to the real world. So, bust the spade bit off your shovel and attach a universal end mount because you'll need the versatility and because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Hey, welcome to the show, everyone. I am flying solo today. If you're interested in being a regular host of this show and coming up with topics and just talking about the business of archaeology, then let me know. Send me an email at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. So I've seen a lot of talk lately on some of the social media channels for archaeologists that people are wondering how to translate their skills into fields other than archaeology. And I've thought a lot about this because, uh, well, primarily, uh, you know, as an archaeologist, as a CRM archaeologist, I've had to look for other things. I've had to do other things occasionally, um, as you do. Sometimes the field work dries up. Sometimes you don't want to or can't move out of the area that you're working in that maybe shuts down for the winter uh, to go to some place that doesn't. Or maybe that place is saturated and you have no experience there. So I put together a short webinar uh, that I have over at the Team Black page, which is at arccert.black. There's no www. It's just arccert.black. Now, truth be told, that's going to take you to our Patreon page because this is a paid service, but um, some of these are free and uh, or at the very lowest level. And uh, this one is one of those two. <laughs> so I'll link to that in the show notes though. So I did this in response to, again, people asking me these questions, but also when I was in the Navy, uh, I had to go through a training, and I can't remember what it was called, uh, but it was somehow, it was like a week-long training where you wore civilian clothes. Ooh, it was, you know, no uniforms. It was crazy. But basically, it was teaching you how to be a civilian, and not that big a deal for me. Well, it kind of was because I went right from high school into uh, the Navy, so I didn't really know how to be a civilian adult, <laughs> to be honest. So, but there were people in there that had been in the Navy for 20 years and they didn't know what being a civilian was like. They didn't have her have to create a resume or, you know, do anything like that. And one of the points of that class was translating your military skills and abilities into the real world. Now that was not too difficult for me because I was in electronics, aviation electronics, and I, I translated that pretty easily into working on uh, corporate jets and aircraft uh, before I went to college for, uh, well, commercial aviation and the anthropology, anthropology, but that's a long story. So anyway, uh, it's not just about the job skills. It's also about some of the social skills, some of the 
leadership training you might get, uh, some of the other stuff that you do, uh, not just, hey, how do I translate digging a square hole into a CV that'll give me a job doing something else over the winter? Or if you want to get out of archaeology, just which is a possibility, but you don't want to feel like you wasted all your time and you didn't, um, you can translate that otherwise. So the webinar I have is called Getting Out, and I'm just going to run through this. Uh, you don't need to be able to see it, so I'm not going to put the slides up there. It really is just a prompter for me to be able to talk about this stuff. So let me go through it. And, and again, if you do want to follow along and you're a Team Black subscriber, then you can go over there and watch the video uh, and see the slides while we're doing this. So what I'm going to talk about is your current skills and then translating those skills. Interviewing is a big one because interviewing in the, in the outside world, outside of archaeology, is, is, can be very different than interviewing within archaeology. And there's very specific reasons why. In some cases, it's very much the same, uh, depending on, especially if you're going for one of the bigger firms. You might even be talking to like their HR department or something. That's going to be very similar. But most of the jobs that we get are with smaller firms and the interview process is quite different. All right. So uh, a little bit about me that you may or may not already know from listening to this podcast after 175 episodes in, you know, like almost eight years is I was in the U.S. Navy from 1993 to 1997. I got my B.A. in anthropology from the University of North Dakota in 2005. Uh, the reason for the time difference between the Navy and my B.A., is that I did go to school right in 1997, actually about six months after getting out of the Navy, so halfway through 1998. But I went for commercial aviation. Uh, I was at Spartan School of Aeronautics for a little while uh, before I transferred to the University of North Dakota to continue that aviation career. And then some, sometime, like three years into it, I decided that I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. I love flying, but I didn't want to do the whole commercial uh, airline pilot thing uh, forever, or even flight instructor. just didn't interest me that much. So... I ended up switching to anthropology because I'd already filled up all my electives and <laughs> I couldn't take any more classes until I declared the major. So uh, I went ahead and did that and graduated in 2005. I did my field school in Olduvai Gorge. That's right, that Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania, looking for early uh, hominid remains dating back. Um, the, the layer we were in was 1.81 to 2.01 million years, I believe. Either way, it was at the bottom of the gorge uh, between uh, the, the base basalt layer and, uh, and another one. That was super cool. Uh, and then I was mostly a field technician uh, and mostly on the East Coast from 2005 to 2009. A couple stints as a crew chief here and there, uh, but mostly just a traveling field tech with my soon-to-be wife at the time. I met her on my second project. And in 2010, I decided to go get my master's and I, I found the right program. Uh, it just happened to be the right circumstances for me. And I got an MS in archaeological resource management from the University of Georgia. And that was a one year program, three semesters. So no in residence stuff, no teaching, just in and out. And I, I tell you, if you want your graduate degree, do that because you're in and out and you're back in the real world. So, you know, don't uh, don't be one of those people that sits in school the whole time because you might think, oh, I'm in school. I can learn a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Well, your coursework is still the same amount of time. The rest of it, you're just working a job trying to finish your dissertation. And that's no fun. So or your thesis. So from 2010 to 2012, I was anywhere from field tech to crew chief to project manager, um, as everybody knows, you know, things things change. And uh from job to job, you could be in a different position. Um, generally, you'll stay in an upward trajectory, but from job to job, you could be moving around. And then in 2012, uh, after, to be honest, after too much resistance with employers trying to go digital, I mean, I bought an iPad in 2009 when they first came out, about a week after they came out, seeing the 
total usability of those. And I said, this is the wave of the future and I want to be a part of it. And I was trying to force digital archaeology in not a very good way. It just means I didn't have the my workflows down. Uh, I was trying to force it on basically anybody I could. And I was either getting resistance or outright hostility <laughs> from people just doing that. So I decided to go out on a limb, and since it was wintertime in the Great Basin anyway, um, and I had just been laid off from my last job, as it happens, that department was going downhill, and I was just the first one to go because I was the last one to get hired. Then I just decided to start my own thing and see how it goes for the field season. So in 2012, I started DigTech LLC, which is the short name for Digital Technologies in Archaeological Consulting. In 2014, I started the Archaeology Podcast Network, and that was about two years after, uh, it was about the same year, 2012, at the end of that year. At the beginning of the year, I started Dig Tech. At the end of the year, I started the CRM News Weekly Podcast, and then a year later, the CRM Archaeology Podcast, and that's been going ever since. Yeah, in 2014, we started the Archaeology Podcast Network. That's coming up on five years. Pretty cool. And then in 2015, I started PCS, which was Professional Certifications for Scientists, with a few um, a few colleagues of mine. And then that somewhat disbanded because we couldn't get it rolling um, after about two years. And then it became Team Black about a year and a half ago. And I'm still moving that forward. And hopefully, you'll go check that out on our Patreon page. Just search Team Black on Patreon or uh, patreon.com forward slash team black or you can find it at arccert.black and there's a lot of different stuff over there and before you ask what the team black means it's more of a black ops for archaeology concept where people who are properly trained can work literally anywhere at a moment's notice and that's my goal you know make everybody as employable as possible so you can be as efficient as possible and you don't have to say you know, maybe you don't have skills in one area or a region. So now you got to jump across an entire region just to go work. No, you should be able to respond to every single job posting and work anywhere efficiently and learn what you need to learn over there, but have the base set of skills to be able to do what you need to do. And not everybody has that. So that's, that's kind of the goal. And then in 2018, I started consulting with WildNote and um, I had worked um, to set up Codify's cultural resource management division before that. Um, they weren't doing cultural resource management before I got there. And I talked to Michael Ashley at Codify and we got Codify up and running for CRM. And then I left there and then they were bought by Paleo West or something. I don't know. Um, if anybody knows the real story behind that, let me know. <laughs> but some, something happened and they basically disappeared, which is what happens when you get acquired. And then Paleo West took on their technology from what I understand, uh, according to Paleo West website. And then you know, went from there. Um, but I started working at WildNote because I liked their business model better. Um, it's, it's more applicable for any size firm, even my small firm, DigTech. I'm using it uh, tomorrow as I'm recording this on a small project. But we have companies that are, uh, you know, multi-billion dollar companies using WildNote as well with staffs of 50 to 70 to 100 people. And it's just a really versatile piece of software, which is more what I wanted, less than a bespoke, uh, we have to create this for you. But this is like, this just works out of the box for most people and you can make it more complicated or easier depending on how you want to do it. So pretty cool. All right. So all that was just to basically establish that I kind of know what I'm talking about. Um, so you guys know where I'm coming from and where we're going to go from here and how I can best, I guess, relate my skills and, and help you relate your skills to the outside world. So let's talk about your skills. What do you have? Um, you have a number of things. You have communication skills. 
Uh, I've got honesty on my list because a lot of times you're you're asked to work out in remote areas and you're you're typically on your own and it's up to you to point out that artifact and say, hey, we found this even though it's three o'clock and you're headed back to the truck. Most people, I think, will stop and point that out. And that's a very, I guess, desirable skill. And to be honest, it's not something a lot of people have. So that's something you can you can say when you're in an interview process or or reword on your uh, CV or resume. Um, technical competency, sure, we use shovels and clipboards a lot, but we also do uh, a lot of technical thinking behind what we do. Maybe we're collecting samples for carbon fourteen dating. Maybe we're doing um, collecting soil samples for uh, for some sort of uh, chemical analysis or something like that. Either way, uh, your technical competency is more than you think it is. Even if you're just writing notes on pen and paper uh, or pencil and paper on your clipboard, you have a technical writing capability that a lot of people don't have. And if you don't have that, then start working on it. <laughs> but you do have something that can help you really write well and describe well. And the power of description is something that is sought after in a lot of business circumstances. Typically have a good work ethic. I mean, who else works 10 days in a row, 10 days in a row and then takes four days off? Not a lot of jobs do that. Um, even if you're, you know, eight on six off or uh, I worked a nine on five off one time, uh, even if you're just five days a week, a lot of times we work long days, you know, 10 hour days and uh, it's a good, good work ethic. You get it done. And that goes back to the honesty thing. You know, the, the worst time to find an artifact is 30 minutes from the truck on the day 10 of a 10 day. <laughs> it takes a pretty strong moral character to say, I found something because you know, that's going to turn into a site, right? Like, you know, it's going to turn into a site and then you can either be able to come back later next week and, pick and clean it up or uh, chances are it's the very last day of the session and it hasn't been sound and it's in your project area. Yeah. You're going to have to record that flexibility. I mean, we are nothing if not completely flexible <laughs> And I mean, from, you know, working two weeks at a job and then having to uh, wait a week and then travel across the country for another two month job or, uh, you know, working somewhere and then uh, being told, hey, your job's not actually going to start for a few days. I mean, we are used to that sort of thing. And being flexible is uh, very important in the business world and in the, the other working areas that you'll find yourself in um, because you might be on some sort of uh, different shift. And when they, when they call you up and say, Hey, we, we got to move your shifts all around next week. You're gonna be like, yeah, that sounds about right. You know, par for the course. So you're probably less likely to complain about it than others, but then maybe you want to get out of archeology. span So you don't have to deal with that anymore. <laughs> go find a, then, then go find yourself a, a nice steady job uh, that doesn't have to worry about that. Determination and persistence. Uh, these are huge. I mean, you do it. I can't, I'm at a loss for words. I mean, determination is, uh, and persistence are kind of wrapped up in the same term there, same concept, but basically you love doing your job so much that you're willing to put up with all the crap that exists in archeology, span you know, all the crap that you have to deal with, the schedule changes, the pay changes, the, um, the personnel, you know, constantly changing, uh, and, and you're so determined to continue to do your job because you love what you do that you're willing to put up with all that stuff. And that just speaks a lot to your determination. And as I said, your persistence working on a team, uh, you always work on a team. Even if you're running a shovel test line by yourself, there's always a team there and you're always working with them, communicating with your team leader or your crew chief and, uh, you know, relaying where you're at, what you're doing, following orders, that sort of thing. So 
working on a team, of course, in nearly every circumstance, unless you're some solo security guard working a gate, which, you know, could have its own benefits. But uh, more often than not, you're going to have to work with other people and work on a team to accomplish a common goal. And working on a team, working on uh, working with other people is not necessarily mean you're on a team. So uh, it really means you are connected with a handful of people and you're all working towards a common goal. Just because you're with a bunch of people and they all happen to work in the same office, you might be working on different things. But if you're all, you know, three or four of you are told, hey, we need to get this report out the door at the end of the week, then that's working on a team. And, uh, and most of us can do that really well. A willingness to learn new things. You are constantly learning new things in the field of archaeology, constantly learning new things. So, and, and if you're not learning new things by choice um, or, or because you have to, you're actually, I know so many people that just read and look up stuff on the internet, watch YouTube videos about archaeology, all kinds of different things when they're off the work uh, site and they're back in the hotel room or wherever they're at. Um, so you're always learning new things, trying to improve yourself and keep going. And that's a good thing to put down on your resume or CV. Problem solving skills are huge. We are constantly trying to solve problems, whether it's logistically, how are we going to do this linear survey with two trucks and do it efficiently? You know, are we going to leapfrog the trucks? Are we going to, um, you know, do it down and back on the survey area and then drive a truck up? How are we going to mark them? Uh, how are we going to do this area from a shovel testing standpoint? You know, it's got a, uh, odd shape to it and we need to figure out what's the most efficient way to do this without dead walking. So those types of problem solving skills are used, uh, nearly every day. And if you're a field technician and not typically making those decisions, maybe start speaking up, you know, but speak up in a way that's respectful to your leadership. Um, even if it's a friend of yours that happens to be the crew chief, you don't want to make them, you know, look less than where they are, uh, in the eyes of the rest of the crew that just doesn't do anybody any good, but say, Hey, I have a suggestion. Maybe we can do this. And if they say, yeah, that looks good, but we're not going to do it. If they don't give you a reason, that's fine. Just you, you put out your idea and that's good enough. So, um, move on. If they take your idea, then you can see how it works and how it doesn't. And then you are working on your own problem solving skills for when you will become a crew chief or for when you get out of archeology span temporarily or permanently and need to work in another environment. Loyalty. A lot of a lot of field techs are loyal to certain companies, to certain people. You know, this is a pretty tight knit group and we have a lot of loyalty towards the people that we respect and that we work with frequently. So um, loyalty is an excellent quality to have in any working circumstance. Okay, so let's take a quick break uh, for some ads so we can keep this network running. While these are running, uh, I want to remind anybody who's a company owner out there or project manager or somebody looking for job postings, um, I'm trying to work with Shovel Bums on this, but so far have not been able to contact our Joe. So if anybody knows uh, how to do that besides his email, you let me know. But otherwise... Uh, we're opening up job postings to the CRM Archaeology podcast listeners, and it's five cents per download. Um, you can buy a block of downloads for your job postings for the season. You can buy like a thousand downloads or something like that. And then we can run your ad. It runs on our back catalog as well. And we will run it right in this space. And it will, uh, if, if say you call me two days in and it's only been downloaded 600 times, then you'll have another 400 if you bought a thousand that you can use for your next job posting. And basically we'll just run those out. Our system does that automatically. So, um, when you hit that limit, unless you pay for more, uh, more spots to increase your limit, then it'll just run out when it runs out. So, um, 
yeah, it's pretty cool. And the job posting will not stay on the podcast forever. It's literally only on for the people who download it during the specified time period. It's a pretty sweet system. So contact me, Chris at archaeology podcast network. If you are interested in that, that's Chris at archaeology podcast network for next level job posting. And if you're hearing this, that means it works. That means other people are hearing it as well. So, all right, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with more on the Archaeology Podcast Network and the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code CRMARC. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, we're back on the Sierra Mark podcast, and we're talking about your skills and how they look on a CV in the real world. So public interaction is the next one on my list here. Uh, A lot of times in different business settings, you have to talk to other people. Go figure. And a lot of times in archaeology, even though we find ourselves out in the boonies sometimes and not seeing anyone, (laughs) that's sometimes when your biggest communication skills come into play because that one rancher that comes screaming up on you because he thinks you left the gate open, but you know it was open when you got there. Um, Or you closed a gate uh, that was already closed and he thinks it was open. Either way, it happens all the time. You need to be able to defuse that situation because more than likely he's got a few firearms in that truck and a few sons or daughters sitting in the back um, that also have firearms. <laughs> so you need to be able to defuse that situation pretty quickly. And then also if you're working in an urban setting, we always get the questions, you know, what are you guys finding? What are you looking for? Did you find any dinosaurs? Things like that. You have to be nice and respectful and answer their questions or tell them why you can't answer their questions and then move on. So a very good skill to have. Following instructions kind of goes along with some of the things that I've already talked about, but we are often given uh, the simplest of instructions, like a 2000 acre map that says, hey, do the survey. (laughs) Sometimes that's it. And we have to come up with uh, that goes back to problem solving skills. We have to come up with a way to figure that out, get it done, and then get it done as efficiently as possible so we can all still get paid at the end of the day. Because as we know, the nature of this business is the lowest bidder uh, will typically win the project. And that's not just archaeology, by the way, to take a little sidetrack. I mean, the lowest builder, bidder builds the bridge, builds the road, builds the stadium, builds the building. You know, in a lot of cases, it's almost always the lowest bidder that gets that contract. And it doesn't mean they're the worst. 
It just means they're the lowest. So because of that, because of the nature of this business, we have to be as efficient as possible. So following instructions, reading all the instructions and making sure that you know how to, I guess, apply any contingencies that happen. Like what happens if you find human remains? You know, what happens if you find, um, uh, I don't know, something else that's listed on the uh, research design or something like that. Um, like out here in Nevada, we very rarely collect artifacts, but if we find something rare, like a Clovis point or something like that, then we contact the BLM and we follow instructions and we do what we're doing. But that's part of the instructions. We have to know, um, you know, who to contact in the right circumstances and then how to get the job done most efficiently. Project management, that is also, of course, huge. Now, you might think because you don't have the project uh, title of project manager, maybe you do, but if you don't, you know, you're still participating in facets of project management, and that's an important thing to consider. When you are on a project and part of that project, you have your own role in that management. Now, if you're a field technician, you might not have a huge role, but you might be helping with certain aspects of it. And you have to think, what are the aspects of this project and what can I say that I, I contributed to? Maybe it's just data collection. Who knows? Maybe writing up site records. I don't know. But if you're a crew chief, chances are you're participating at a little higher level in the project management. And then, of course, field directors and project managers are managing those projects end to end in most cases. So writing down all those skills about project management, like certain project management tasks that other project managers and other fields don't have to deal with, because not only do you have to write a report and make sure it stays on budget, but you have to also find lodging. You have to take $15,000 in cash out into the field sometimes. You have to uh, make sure when the truck gets a flat, you know where to fix it. You have to know uh, where's the nearest first aid or hospital or level one trauma center or uh, where is the nearest um, you know, place to get groceries for your, for your field crews. <laughs> and then field crews. You have to get field crews. Um, you have to make sure you have enough people showing up at the right time in the right place and they know what they're doing. They know what to expect. Um, back to assets, you need to make sure the trucks are available for your company, the Trimbles, you know, the GPSs, the tablets, all that stuff. You have to make sure it's all available and ready to be used at the time you need to use them and that people aren't going to be wondering where that equipment is when they need the project. So, um, project management, lots of things we consider that other people don't, that will put you a step above the rest. And that goes right along with the next one, leadership. So leadership is huge, of course. Um, it's something that we uh, don't get a lot of training in in archaeology, and it's something we need to somewhat learn on our own from watching other people and learning from other people's mistakes and then also doing some reading on our own. But once you get to that level where you are a leader of somebody, and really the only people that aren't leaders uh, inherently are field technicians because they're part of the team, but when you get to crew chief and above then they're leading somebody and those leadership skills, even if they're relatively undeveloped, um, it's still a leadership environment. And it's something you can put on your resume saying, I led crews of four people back out nowhere where you can't find me. <laughs> and uh, There was nobody around, but we got the job done, right? That's a huge thing. I've got adverse weather conditions on here in some jobs that you're looking for. They might uh, need people that are not scared of working in, you know, cold, snow, rain, things like that. While we don't typically work in some of that stuff because it means that we can't see the ground or what we're doing is getting damaged, that doesn't mean we don't do it, you know, and, and there's a lot of adverse weather conditions you probably worked in that you may not consider adverse, like, for example, working in 110 degree weather in the Southwest or working in, you know, zero degree weather in the upper Midwest. 
those are adverse weather conditions and you, I wouldn't say are adapted to them because I don't think anybody can be, but you've at least worked in those and it's something that you can say that other people might not be able to say if that's important for the job that you're trying to get. Driving and basic vehicle maintenance is the next one I have. And again, the type of driving that we do is something that not people don't do on a regular basis. Um, again, I mentioned my wife was a, a field technician when I met her and we eventually got married, of course. And she grew up driving, you know, in the streets of, you know, the suburbs of Charlotte, North Carolina <laughs> and, uh, not very stressful driving situations. Mostly, uh, she went from there to driving big four wheel drive trucks in, you know, crazy conditions with a crew because when you're the crew chief, a lot of times you're expected to drive. And when she was made a crew chief, she really didn't have a lot of training in driving in those situations. So she had to learn it. And, um, that's something that a lot of people in her peer group just simply never have and never will do. So, uh, if that's important for what you need to do, um, or something you want to mention, then put that on there. Um, and then a basic vehicle maintenance that goes along with that because we've all had a flat tire, you know, we all have to check the oil, do different things. So being able to, uh, actually know where the jack is on a truck and find it and then know where the jack point is or how to find it and then change those tires is uh is a good skill if it's important for the job that you're trying to look for map reading so again um you can translate this into obviously other jobs where you need to read maps because not everybody can read and understand a map i mean you can read it but can you really place yourself and visualize that map on your landscape um, a lot of us could do that, uh, but a lot of people cannot. Uh, but those sorts of skills, those sorts of analytical skills can be translated into other things like blueprints or schematics or things like that, where you can, you can look at a thing, look at the legend and then understand, uh, and translate it into real world applications. And that is an important skill. Orienteering or using a compass again, kind of goes along the same lines. Like it's, it's technically equipment that you are using, uh, and, not a lot of people know how to use that, right? I mean, unless they were in the Boy or Girl Scouts, then uh, they probably didn't learn how to use a compass when they were a kid. And that just tells people that you not only know how to use a compass, but you know how to uh, follow these technical instructions and get from one place to the next. And you just have to decide how that translates into a skill based on the job that you're actually looking for. Um, you know, maybe that's, uh, I know like Home Depot and Lowe's, <laughs> if you work there, kind of a weird example, but some of them have maps of, on their, uh, of the store on their thing. And there are people that just can't read that, you know, not, and that goes back to map reading, of course, but there's people that just can't orient themselves and read that map and then get to where they need to go. Um, and that's a skill that you have that others would not. So you wouldn't really think of that, uh, but you might get a seasonal job at say Amazon or, um, you know, one of those big department stores, or something like that, and have to navigate your way around. And this sounds funny. You might be laughing at this, but put that on your resume and CV and see if anybody else did that. They'll be impressed. I guarantee it. And then I have analysis on here. So we often do in-field or lab artifact analysis and just those pure analytical skills of being able to look at something and describe it and, you know, take down a certain amount of characteristics about it and, and keep those organized and catalog that does translate into the real world. Um, the ability to use, uh, spreadsheets, numbers, um, looking at those sorts of things. Again, the power of description. Um, those are skills that, uh, you have learned and mastered and that few others have. So I've also got on this, uh, presentation here, if you head over to team black and check that out, um, I found this online and it was dated 2015, but it's still relevant. It says top 10 qualities and skills employers are looking for. Now keep this in mind 
with the things I just told you. Communication skills, honesty, technical competency, work ethic, flexibility, determination and persistence, ability to work in harmony with coworkers, eager and willing to add their knowledge base to their knowledge base and skills, um, problem solving skills and loyalty. Those are all things that I just mentioned. And they're all things that um, employers are looking for. And you can not only say that you have these, but back them up with real world circumstances. Okay, so when we're looking at creating a job posting, sometimes we have to um, look at the language of the job posting, right? We need to really understand uh, what this thing is saying. So when you look at a job post, there are some really specific things that I want you to look at. Um, For example, I have one on my presentation here that says consulting project manager, and it's with uh, Oracle, um, actually in Reno, Nevada. It says this manager level position is responsible for a segment within a given project portfolio, which can be defined by industry, service line, technology, center, specialty area, or region. Main responsibilities include people management, people oversight, and sales enablement, uh, accountable for operational slash financial metrics and maintaining project uh, slash portfolio profitability while ensuring quality of project delivery and maintaining customer referenceability. I don't think that's even a word, but... There's some key words in there that you can look at. You might think, man, I don't know anything about this position, but do you need to know anything about that position? Because if you are a good project manager, you can you can you can look at a task and say, here are the components of it. I can get these done. Uh, you don't necessarily need to know all the things about that job, but you need to be able to work with the people under you because it's looking for a manager position. So you have people that know how to do this. It's just your job to keep them on task because a lot of people are good worker bees, right? They're good if you give them just a task and say, get this done from start to finish, but they don't have the ability to see the big picture. They don't know how that fits with everything else. And that's where you come in as a project manager. So by the way, the estimated salary on this is 100 to $148,000. So, uh, Keep that in mind. Um, it also says further down, eight years of experience relevant to this position, including two years of project or direct line management experience. So you can get that in archaeology. Um, I mean, chances are this is kind of an outlier. You're probably not going to get hired for this because there's other people in this actual industry that are looking for this job. But you never know. Uh, it doesn't hurt to try. and It doesn't hurt to work outside of your comfort zone to see if you can get something else. All right, so let's look at uh, actual translating some of your field skills and what that means. So crew chief, uh, to me, that says can manage a small team of people towards a specific task. You know, that is um, really just the bullet point right there. You can manage a small team of people towards a specific task or a common goal, right? That's the definition of a crew chief. Field technicians can follow instructions and work as part of a team to achieve a common goal. So that's the other half of that, of course. Um, excavation experience uh, could be something like able to negotiate a complex task in a changing environment and make decisions with little or no supervisions. And not only is that, again, a complex task, but the changing environment. I mean, how many times have you been excavating when you find the edge of a feature and now you've got to move over to the next one, decide, am I going to stop excavating this uh, at this level and then bring the surrounding units down to the same level? Uh, and then when I find that feature, how am I going to tackle that feature? Um, you're not only just making the decisions on your own, but you're making them with your team. And if you're a field technician, you're making them with, you know, the other people that are there, the crew chief, and you're all figuring out what's the best scientific way to handle this thing. And that is um, negotiating complex tasks in changing environments and making decisions with little or no supervision. Uh, Working with landowners and the public. Uh, that's something we do frequently, as I mentioned, that can be able to interface with customers and clients in a calm and professional manner, of course, right? 
So office skills, there's some things you have there that can translate into uh, usable skills in the real world. Uh, let's start with report writing. Strong word processing and technical writing skills, right? I mean, even if you're not the strongest writer, you're probably better than other people that don't commonly use those programs. I'm in the Civil Air Patrol, and I'm always dealing with people who are you know, 40, 50 to 60, 70 years old that simply can't use a computer. Like they don't know anything about using Word or even Google Docs to make bullet points or indent, use tabs, different things. The basic skills of a word processing program that you take for granted, these people simply don't know how to do. You're way more employable than they are because of that. Uh, GIS proficiency, um, able to learn and adapt to complicated software. Doesn't that make sense? GIS is complicated software, and I don't know if we're all able to learn it, <laughs> but if you have learned it, then you can put that down um, because that's an important thing to know. Uh, if somebody has, uh, especially these bigger companies, they might have more complicated software that they're using for project management or whatever the case may be. You can come in and say, well, I've learned these other things, so this shouldn't be too hard and just uh, figure it out, learn it and go from there. Um, it's always best to just say, yeah, I can do that and then figure it out as you go. <laughs> What's the worst case scenario? So the next one is site form transcription. Um, again, that goes back to basic computer skills. You can use uh, basic computer skills to get things done. And again, I say basic. That's basic to us. But you know, to a lot of people, it's not basic. And um, some people looking for that job might not have those skills to take a template in Word or something like that and write down everything they see and keep the formatting structured right, right? I mean, that's that can be a, <laughs> that can be a challenging skill sometimes. Um, then basic computer skills, of course, I've mentioned that before. Um, it's just writing that down and making sure you uh, provide a lot of detail with that. Report research, again, able to research a complex topic and write a coherent synthesis and analysis. Now, that's typically people at the project manager level, but still, uh, you might be helping with those tasks as a crew chief or a field technician and then be able to see portions of that uh, and get in there. But if you're at the project manager level and you're doing this, this is a huge topic, a huge thing that people need and are looking for uh, in the business world. And the next one here is people skills. Uh, how do we translate these? So when you're working at a company, uh, you are working with a CRM firm, big or small, it doesn't matter. Um, but you can translate this as able to work well with others and help foster a positive working environment. And make sure you do that. You know, there's, there's no reason to be negative. Uh, if you're going to be negative, just move on to another company. Uh, and then, you know, if you have to report them or do something, that's fine. But Typically, the people you're working with are also either temporary or just got there because they found a permanent job. So don't take it out on them. And I'm speaking from experience here because I had a lot of negativity at a lot of my earlier jobs because that's just who I was at the time. And that didn't translate well. So uh, you want to be able to uh, not only call these people up for references, but be able to say that you've done this. And when they go check on that and see if that's actually the case, um, you want people to speak highly of you. And hiring for projects, if you're doing that, if that's part of your job, uh, finding people for projects, you can translate that into able to conduct hiring interviews and parse through multiple applications, right? So that is a tough skill, and there are some things you learn along the way as you're doing that. And um, you might be looking, maybe you're looking for an HR job, who knows? Or maybe that's part of your job at this new place, and uh, you want to know that and Write that down and be able to translate that and then talk about that during the interview process. And then, of course, a lot of us or most of us or every one of us work under a PM, project manager or PI, principal investigator. 
and you can translate that as able to work under a supervisor and know when to ask for guidance and when to proceed on your own. That's more typical of those positions because, you know, there's always somebody above you. So you need to know, you know, when to ask for help and and when to just push on and not bother that person because you don't want to ask them every single question. But you need to know when you're out of your out of your depth a little bit. Right. And uh, you've done the research and you've exhausted all possibilities. Now go to them and ask the question. And that can pertain to field technicians as well, although less so because they're typically uh, typically a lot of the questions have been asked by the time it gets down to you. And, um, you know, you're just following those instructions and moving on. However, sometimes you might find something and it's a little out of scope and you're like, Hmm, should we record this or should we not? And you got to kind of make that call and then, uh, you know, ask appropriately. Okay. The final thing I have on here is interviewing because the interviewing process is, uh, can be a little different for, uh, outside of archaeology. And the reason I say that is a lot of times in archaeology, you're simply just not interviewed, whether you've been in this long enough or, uh, and you just know everybody, or, um, sometimes that's just the way it is. Like if you apply for the job and they want to take you, typically you won't even get a phone call unless they're going to hire you. <laughs> like they call you and say, Hey, we saw your CV. We want to bring you on for this job. When can you start? Or can you be here, you know, in two weeks or something like that? Um, rarely will, they spend the time to actually call you and conduct a little mini interview or have you come in and conduct an interview there unless you're trying to get hired for a higher position. If you're looking for a project manager or some sort of full-time position with the company, they might bring you in for an interview. In fact, they probably will because that's just common. And the bigger companies will have you go through HR and do all that stuff before you come in. So that's important. Um, we're going to finish up this discussion on interviewing on the other side of this break. So uh, stay tuned for that and we'll be right back. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. All right, we're back on the Serial Archaeology Podcast, episode 175, and we are translating your skills into the real world, as though archaeology is not, but it's really not. So we talked about some of the differences between archaeology interviews or CRM interviews and um, outside of that field interviews. So some of the stuff that I've learned and some of the research I've done and some of my actual real world experience uh, have told me the following things. So the first thing is be early. Always be at least 15 minutes early. Don't be crazy early. Especially, I mean, that could just annoy people, right? If you're like 30 minutes early, but 15 minutes early allows you to um, get there, compose yourself. Um, Maybe you don't know where you're going. You might have to find the front door. Maybe it's a big building. You got to find the actual office. You want time to do those things. So plan to be 15 minutes early. And then if you plan to be 15 minutes early, but you hit traffic or something happens that you didn't account for, or literally every single red light um, takes forever, then 
at least you've got that time built in. So if they say be there at four, you aim to be there at three forty-five or three thirty. That way, anything that comes up can be sucked up in that amount of time that you plan to be there. Right. Uh, also, it shows that you know you can uh, plan for that. If somebody shows up fifteen minutes late and said, "Oh, there was traffic or I had a flat tire," I was like, "Okay, so you plan to be here right exactly on time." That's not very good planning and decision making, right? I'm hiring a project manager. Or I'm hiring somebody that can make those decisions, but you thought you could get here right exactly at the right time, and that's unrealistic because we all know that's not true. If you can, uh, go to the building the day before and figure out the layout. If you happen to live in the area and it's a big building or a complex thing, just do a drive-by. Just do a quick drive-by, figure it out. They don't know who you are. Otherwise, you wouldn't be interviewing. So uh, even get out of the car and go look around the building if you can. Sometimes they have security and you can't do that. But um, go check it out. So the next day when you go in or even later that day, you know exactly where to go. And then you can plan your time accordingly. Dress for the job. You know, sometimes when you're in an archaeology interview... Hell, you can come in looking like an archaeologist and they expect that, <laughs> but not everyone expects that. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is don't overdress either. You know, if you're trying to get a seasonal job at Amazon or something, you probably don't need to wear a suit unless you're being a floor manager or something like that. But if you're going to be pulling packages and um, packaging stuff up and shipping it out, obviously don't dress like a slob. You know, you don't want to wear shorts and flip flops, but also um, dress in clean half decent clothes and, uh, and go there and, um, be respectful, but you know, I would say business casual slacks in a, in a nice shirt or, uh, you know, dress or something for women or pantsuit or something like that, but something that's not crazy dress up, but also, um, you know, kind of middle of the road. It just, it just depends. Don't use profanity and don't expect a job at the end of the interview. That's the other thing I have here. Um, obviously profanity, unless, Listen, unless that's how you speak and then the other person starts going into it, then maybe you just got to kind of play it by ear. But generally, you don't want to pull that out right away. It makes you sound ignorant. And of course, expect them to say at the end of the interview, hey, we'll call you or, you know, we got some more people to look through or blah, blah, blah. Um, But don't expect a job. Just thank them for their time and move on. Okay. And then when you do move on, uh, whether you get the job or not, you want to you want to send this out immediately, um, send a thank you card or an email after the interview. And if you're sending a thank you card or something like that, write it before you go and then send it that day. Um, you can maybe finish it off, get most of it written, but then finish it off after the interview and, you know, bring up something that maybe you guys laughed about or something like that just to, uh, jog their memory on who it was. But that's just one more thing that puts you top of mind versus everybody else. They might have a stack of a hundred resumes to go through and you're the only one that sent a thank you card right? So maybe you weren't the strongest, but they're going to remember that and um, act accordingly. Okay. Well, that's pretty much all I have. Uh, If you have questions, please email me, chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. What kind of jobs have you guys gotten outside of archaeology? What kind of seasonal jobs and what kind of things did you put on your CVs or resumes that you feel were accurate descriptions of what you did, but translated for the job that you were applying for. I'm interested to hear that. Uh, We'll talk about it on a future episode if we get enough, or we'll put it in the show notes or something like that. So um, please send me all those... uh, Please send me all those things and we'll talk about that. And again, if you're interested in becoming a host on the CRM Archaeology Podcast, then email me, chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. We're looking for more people that can just sit here and have a conversation, hit most of these episodes. And, uh, you know, you don't have to be here every time, but we do record at 2 p.m. on Sundays. And we know that people have schedules and field seasons, but I try to have two or three people on every recording. And uh, unless we're doing an episode like this, and then we can have a full show and a good discussion. Okay. 
And you also don't need to be somebody with 5, 10, 15 years of experience. Um, I wouldn't mind having a few uh, green people in the on the crew, uh, on the Sierra Archaeology podcast crew, just so you can have that perspective. Because sometimes we forget what it was like, you know, when we were first starting out. So uh, I want that fresh perspective when we're saying, hey, per diem this and hotels that. And they're like, yeah, it's not like that anymore. <laughs> or something like that. Like maybe I've already stayed in Airbnbs. I mean, I'm actually doing that um, a lot myself. But who knows? Uh, we need those fresh perspectives on different levels in the field. So Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com uh, for everything. And I hope you guys are taking this October podcast and listening to it, sharing it with your friends and uh, telling your employers about the job postings and looking forward to either a productive or relaxing winter. So that's about it. Thanks for this. Check out Team Black. Check out all the show notes. We'll see you next week. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.